Hi, this is Dr. John Ankerberg. I invite you to dig into God's Word today with my dear friend, the late Dr. Wayne Barber, as he leads you verse by verse through the Bible. Would you turn with me today to Romans chapter 15? We're going to be looking, focusing on verses 17 and 18, then jumping back to chapter 1. You'll see what I'm talking about in a minute. I'm going to talk today about the priorities of ministry. Really, it's one priority, but three things involved in it, so we made it the priorities of ministry. True ministry is not a result of our commitment, but it's a result of our surrender. And that's what we want to be talking about today. As I was growing up, during Christmas time, almost every Christmas, we didn't have a television forever, and we were grateful for that. But we'd get a big puzzle, and we'd work it together as a family. We'd always get a big one, over a thousand pieces. Anybody in here ever do that besides us? I mean, that was, that was the thing, son. I couldn't wait. We didn't get a whole lot of things for Christmas, but buddy, we had plenty of fruit, and we had a big old puzzle, and mama would fix a big old Smithfield salt-cured ham. I mean, it would send your blood pressure clean out of your brain, but it was good stuff. It was good stuff. And we'd get together and work that puzzle. You know, the first thing we had to do was to see the whole picture. We had to look at the whole thing and see what it was that we were putting together. And then we would busily put all the different color pieces together, and somebody would get it started. And it was just the most fun. We'd never finish it in the first day. But we'd come back the next day. And when we came back, we had to do it once again. Step back. Look at the whole picture and then get involved in putting the pieces together. That was a great time. I miss those days. Well, if you've made the mistake in, in listening to these pillars that we've been talking about of somehow separating seven pillars from what true Christianity is, Jesus being Jesus in us, uh, moment by moment Christianity Trusting him, the integrity and accountability built in because you can't walk with him that he doesn't convict you of sin. He, you can't walk with him that he doesn't hold you accountable. You can't walk with him without the word of God renewing your mind and the spirit transforming your life. If you somehow have separated these seven pillars over here as seven pieces of a puzzle, but you forgot the picture, then no wonder you might be confused by about this time. Because, you see, you can't separate the two. For two and a half years, we've been talking about what I call living grace. Christ being who he is in and through us. The life inside the coat that we've shared so many different times. Jesus be Jesus and me. No longer me, but the resurrection power. Fill me this hour. Jesus be Jesus in me. Lord, I can't. You never said I could. You can. You always said you would. And approaching life that way, waking up every morning, situation by situation, saying yes to him. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, yes, Lord. If somehow in your mind you're thinking that the seven pillars are something else, you've missed it. Because you see, the Christ in me is the well that all of this flows from. Ministry takes care of itself. We're just explaining it in a more detailed way. You don't even have to have these seven pillars if you're walking, letting Jesus be Jesus in your life. So make sure you're making the connection. One has to be there before the other can take place. Well, so far we've seen three pillars. Pillar number one, 
we saw God's pattern for ministry, and every pillar that comes from that was cut from that pattern. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. The Lord who lives in me gives me the gift, gives me the ministry, and gives me the effect. That's the pattern for ministry. It won't ever be any different down here on earth. Christ living in me. The second pillar was God's power in ministry from Isaiah 6. Whatever God initiates, the gift, the ministry, the effect, he, initi- he, he anoints, and which means he divinely enables it with his power. And then the third pillar we looked at last time was God's platform for ministry. What is that? That ministry is not something that's achieved for God, but something that's received from God. And we saw that from John chapter 11. I guess the, the thing that still rings in my mind was what we've learned in John 11 from Martha and Mary and from the disciples as to why it is so difficult to the human brain to understand this truth. Why it is it's so difficult to join Jesus in what Jesus is doing. We learn many things. We learn from Martha and Mary that they were not able to distinguish the obvious from the actual. They saw an obvious problem. Lazarus, their brother, was sick, and so they sent and told Jesus. They couldn't have understood. They didn't understand that if you're going to join Jesus, he has a bigger picture than just Lazarus being sick. You see, this was going to be the miracle that would pull the trigger on him going to the cross. And they couldn't see that. Therefore, they had an agenda. And they said, Lord, you need to be here, and you need to be here now. And they sent him word. Well, see, not only did they not be able to understand the difference between the obvious, which they thought was real, and the actual, which he understood, but also because of that, they didn't understand that God's delays are not necessarily denials. When he got the message, the scripture told us last week that he stayed two more days. <laughs> Thanks, Lord. I really appreciate your moving when I think you need to move. One day for the message to get back to them that he sent, two days that he stayed, and then one day traveled to get back to the Bethany outside of Jerusalem, two miles from Jerusalem. He was at Bethany, but on the other side of the Jordan. There are two Bethanies. And so when he gets there, Lazarus has been in the tomb four days. Martha sees him and says, thanks, Lord. If you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died. You can't do anything now. You can't do anything here. He's dead. That's too big for you. And then when they got to the tomb, they even showed more of that disappointment. He said, roll a stone away. And Martha, bless her heart, she said, Lord, it's going to stink by now. I've been in there four days. See, in the Jewish superstition, they felt like that the spirit left the body after the third day. Well, none of, nobody had been resurrected on the fourth day, and he, I believe he purposely did that. We don't have any proof of that. I think he went on the fourth day for that very reason. This was the miracle among all miracles. But you know, not only that, they finally began to grasp, that the disciples particularly, that they had been living by fear and not by faith. You see, they had built a comfort zone. They said, Lord, are you going there? <laughs> not us. We're not going there. We were just over in Judea with you, and they tried to kill you, Lord. We put two and two together. Kill you, kill us. We're not going. And he said, don't you understand? Unless you walk with me, you know, you're, you're walking in darkness. You're walking out of fear. Why don't you walk with me? You're more secure with me than you would be here. Well, they couldn't quite grasp it. They loved that little comfort zone, don't we all? 
And they've put little borders on it and said, I'm not stepping outside this comfort zone, God. Now you just make sure I'm not joining you because I'm afraid of what might happen to me. But then the last thing we saw was they finally realized that only in joining him do they get to see what only he can do. Martha and Mary wanted a healing. Jesus wanted a resurrection. (laughs) Which one would you rather have? And boy, when he stood at that tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth. And old Lazarus, all bound up, kind of walking like this, I guess. And he said, unwrap him. Take the, take the blinders off of his eyes. Take, take it off of his mouth so he can witness. Take the, take the wrappings off of his hands so he can work. Take the wrappings off of his feet so he can walk. And Lazarus came back. Isn't that incredible? And that's immediately, it says on down, this was the miracle that caused them to plot to kill the Lord Jesus. And it was just no time before he was on the cross. We see, when you join Jesus, he just doesn't do things our way. Somehow his watch is on a different time zone. Somehow he's always slow, but you know what? He's never late. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And so when we try to join him, it doesn't make a lot of sense when you sit around a table and try to figure it out. And these are some of the hindrances that we all run into. Well, our text today is Romans chapter 15, verse 17 and 18. Now, in this message today, we're really going to go jump back to chapter 1 in a, in a few moments We're going to see the heart of the Apostle Paul. We're going to see what true ministry really is in the life of a believer that loved God. But look what he says in Romans 15, 17, and 18. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. Interesting statement. Verse 18. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. Now, the word boasting there he uses in verse 17 is the word kofkesis. It comes from the word kofkaome. It means to glory in something, to draw attention to something. It's mostly used in Scripture as a bad thing. It's mostly what arrogant, proud people do. They, they, they call attention to themselves in many different ways. The root word that we get the word from is the word ofken. And ofken is the word, Greek word for neck. <laughs> it has the idea of a proud, arrogant person sticking his neck out and calling attention to himself. <laughs> you ever known anybody like that? <laughs> oh, boy, haven't we all been there from time to time? When I was growing up, we had a, I think it was a duck. I keep getting it confused. It was either a duck or a goose, but I was two years old, so I didn't know the difference. And his name was Dippy. And Dippy was a good duck, except it was a territorial duck, had a mind of its own. And you're talking about proud and arrogant, but you did not infringe upon his territory. Anytime I got near him, Mama said that when I'd go to hug the duck or pet the duck, the duck would take out after me and chase me around the house, biting me in a certain puffy part of my body. Buddy, he had that neck stuck out, and man, he was just running after me. Buddy, he's calling attention to himself and to his territory. That's exactly the idea of what we're looking at here. You know what? Men love to boast. Men, mankind loves to boast. All of us do, women or men, but mankind loves to boast. What do we boast in, Wayne? I'll tell you what we boast in. The Bible will tell us. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 tells us what we love to boast in. What a man is most arrogant about. How a man draws attention to himself in at least three different areas. It says in verse 23 of Jeremiah 9, Thus says the Lord, 
Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might, and let not a rich man boast of his riches. Now, three things that men love, mankind loves to boast about, whether it be in the church, it can, it can get into Christianity very easily, in what he knows, in what he knows. Dear old Vance Havner is dead now. I could kill him because I wanted to bring him here, but he died on me. Died about, he was way up in ears. He used to say, we're dying by degrees, PhDs. DDs, MDs, LTDs, fiddly Ds. <laughs> I can hear him saying it today. He said, We're dying by degrees. It's like when you go into somebody's office and they got degrees wallpapering the wall. They want you to know something. They want to boast in what they know. Wow, am I not something? But secondly, mankind loves to boast in what he can do, what he can do. He said, let, the might not, let not the mighty man boast in his might. Well, these campaigns that we have in Christian circles say, man, we can do it, we can do it, we can do it, we can, I'm okay, you're okay, let's get this thing done. Oh, man, boasting in what we can do? That's pretty sick. And then the third thing mankind likes to boast in is what he has. He says, let not a rich man boast in his riches. We love to talk about what we have, don't we? And this subconsciously comes out in the flesh. This is when the word is used in a bad way. Churches can do that. I mean, people can do that. Man loves to boast in these things. But God is not pleased with that kind of boasting. But however, there is a boasting that he is pleased with. And he says that in verse 24 of Jeremiah 9. He says, but let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Now, this is what Paul's doing in Romans chapter 15, verse 17 and 18. He's boasting in the right thing. He's not calling attention to himself. When he was a religious man, as, as a Pharisee, he always called attention to himself. Something's changed in his life. He's boasting in things pertaining to God. Look at the verse again. For I would not presume, verse 18, for I would not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. Now here's the former religious man saying something entirely as an antithesis to everything he used to be. The little word through. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me is a little word, dia. And dia is the word that means by the means of me. Paul had learned something. Paul had learned he's not that important. Paul had learned that he can be a conduit. He can be a vessel through whom Christ could accomplish his works. He could live his life through him. He had learned this in, in, in the new relationship he had with the Father through Jesus Christ. Wow. How different this is from Paul's own words describing what he used to be. In Philippians chapter 3, in the middle of verse 4, he says, If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. What he's saying to the Philippians is, you don't know how religious a man I was. He says in verse 5, Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. 
But if you know that passage, he goes on to say, but I count every bit of it as loss. For the excellency of experiencing Christ in my life. Christ had taken an old religious man, sincere in his heart, and turned him inside out, saved him, put him through the waters of baptism, and brought him into the kingdom. And as a result of that, now Paul is a changed man. Is a changed man. Paul now understands Christianity is not some religious effort. but Christianity is a relationship. And he gets to participate in what God's doing on this earth. He's still living on this earth in the lives of the people that have received him. Now, what was it about Paul's life that we can learn from today? He tapped into it. He, he experienced Christ in his life. How can we do the very same thing? How can we see ministry flow out of us, something that we don't have to achieve for God, but something we can receive from him? Well, I, in looking at this and studying Romans, what, 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 I, I didn't have to go past chapter 1. Three verses there tell me everything I'm looking for. You see, the one thing Paul had to do, which has many dimensions to it, that's why we said priorities instead of priority, is that he had to learn to die to self. But that's really a simple act. We die to self when we say yes to God and to his word. We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about a lifestyle. We're talking about predictability. When we sin, we say yes to him. We agree with him that we have sinned, and we come and do what his word tells us to do. This is the lifestyle that we learn to adopt. And when we are doing that, we're saying no to self. You can't say yes to self and yes to Christ in the same breath. You don't focus on self, you focus on him. And as you say yes to him, victory is not you overcoming sin. Victory is Jesus overcoming you. All those years Paul spent committed <clears throat> and determined to do it right were now replaced by a willingness to simply yield and say yes to God. Lord, you, I can't. You never said I could. You can. You always said you would. Now we want to look now at this newfound way of living in Paul's life. And let's try to discern what was this surrender we're talking about. I want to be surrendered, Wayne. I, I want to be surrendered too. I want to say that back to you. How do we know that our surrender is what God is talking about here in Paul's life and in our life? What, how do we know that? Romans 15, 17, and 18 again, just to keep it in your mind. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I would not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience, this is the eternal work it does, of the Gentiles by word and by deed. Three things. First of all, Paul's surrender was without any selfish argument. You see, Paul's surrender was from his heart, not from his head. It wasn't lip service he was paying to God. It was something of his heart that had been surrendered to God. <clears throat> Verse 1 of chapter 1 of Romans, if you want to look there with me. We'll start there. There are three verses in chapter 1 going to tell us everything we need to know about Paul and about his surrender. In verse 1 of Romans 1, it says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, the word bondservant tells us everything we're looking for about this surrendered heart that Paul had. The word bondservant is the Greek word vulos. And vulos is, is means a slave. In fact, in most of the translations, it is translated as slave. That's interesting. Why did the translators choose not to translate it that way here? Why did they put bondservant instead of slave? 
Well, there were two kinds of slaves. The translators understood the meaning that Paul had here and tried to help us, help us to understand the, the context of what's happening. A simple slave, which, by the way, in Roman times was very common. Thousands and thousands of people were, had slaves. Now, they, these slaves didn't want to be a slave. They were either born into slavery or they chose to be a slave. Or they were made to be, or whatever. But they, it wasn't something you'd grow up wanting to be. They did what they did because they had to. They always had a gripe. They always had an argument. They always had a complaint because they didn't choose to be a slave and they didn't like having to do what they were doing. But a bondservant was entirely different. A bondservant made a choice to be a slave. He did what he did because he got to. He did what he did because he wanted to. He loved his master. It was not something a person had to take a whip and drive, it, drive him to do. No, he did this out of a reflex of his heart, the love in his heart. In fact, Scripture bears this out. Matter of fact, there's the most beautiful picture of this, and I guarantee you this is what Paul had in mind and, and exactly why the translators translated it this way. Paul didn't have the New Testament. He wrote three-fourths of it. It comes out of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 12 through 17, that tells us what a bond servant was. In verse 12, it says, if your kinsman, and this is Hebrew slavery, different than Roman slavery, I understand that. They could hire themselves out. They could become a slave to somebody, particularly if they'd gotten into a debt. But there were rules on how you treated your slaves. If your kinsman, a Hebrew man or woman, is sold to you, then he shall serve you six years. But in the seventh year, you shall set him free. That's the sabbatical year, Leviticus, Leviticus 25. Seven times, seven of those times was the 50th year, was the jubilee. And so this was a sabbatical year that slaves were set free. Verse 13, when you set him free, you shall not send him away empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally from your flock and from your threshing floor and from your wine vat. You shall give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. You treat him just like you would family members. This is the way the Hebrews treated slaves, not the way the Romans treated them. Verse 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. He said, boy, don't forget you were a slave, and look how God treated you. Now you treat them the same way. Verse 16, it shall come about if he says to you, I will not go out from you. Now that's an interesting situation, isn't it? Here's a slave, and he doesn't want to leave. It's sabbatical year. And he says, because he loves you in your household, since he fares well with you, then you shall take an awl, the instrument that they would use to drive through the ear, and pierce it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your servant forever. Also, you shall do likewise to your maid servant. And you know, what happened was, after this sabbatical year, when people would see the same slave that was slavery before he had to, and they saw him continuing to serve his master, they would step back and say, oh, what love is this? Look how he loves him. He was set free. And in the, in the freedom that, that had been given, he made a choice to go back and to serve his master. Why? Because he loved him. It's like the disciples said to Jesus one day, Lord, if we leave you, where would we go? Nobody treats us like you treat us. This is what Paul had in mind. Paul had been a Pharisee. He had been a slave. He had been obliged. He had been uh, commanded to obey the law. He, he had lived in that kind of bondage for years, but now he's been set free. And now he can make a love choice to become the servant, the slave of righteousness of the Lord Jesus. 
But now this new kind of obedience as a bondservant that Paul had was out of his love for Christ. Hang on to that thought because I don't want you to lose that. Uh, he was grateful and wanted to yield to the will that God had for him. The phrase bondservant expresses the true heart of a believer who loves Christ, and this becomes his motivation in all that he does. I heard the story about Sunday morning, about 9.15. There was a knock that came on the man's door in his house, in his bedroom. And a voice said, as, he, as they opened the door, a woman's voice said, Get out of bed and get dressed, and you get yourself to church. And he laid there with one eye stuck shut, and he said, give me two good reasons. She said, number one, you're 45 years old, and you've lived long enough to know better than to sleep in on Sunday morning. And number two, the most important one is, you're the pastor. <laughs> hey, let me ask you a question this morning. Let me just ask you a question. Why do you do what you do? That's bottom line. It's not what you do, it's the motivation behind it. A bondservant has a heart. A bondservant says, I want to, I get to, thank you, Lord. But a slave says, I don't want to, okay, I'll do it. Take him one mile, I'll take him one mile and no further. And the bondservant says, I'll take him as far as you'll let me take him. I'll take him as far as God will let me take him. You see, a slave obeys, yes, but he has a gripe to it. He has a complaint to everything he does. He has an argument, always has an argument. Because he's not doing what he's doing out of a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. A slave doesn't understand obedience out of a pure love for his master. One more time. Why do you do what you do? Do we complain about everything that happens? Is our attitude one of selfish wants instead of grateful submission to Christ? Is it out of a grateful heart? Have you understood that he didn't need to save you and he owes us nothing? Has it ever overwhelmed you to the point that you think, Oh God, like the psalmist says, What is man that thou art mindful of him? And being so overwhelmed in who he is, you just do what you do and there's no complaint, there's no argument, there's no strife whatsoever. If you're living that way, then you're a bondservant and ministry is taking care of itself. You don't have to worry about it. You don't even have to hear about seven pillars. Ministry's already there. Your life is the seven pillars. Really, that would be my objective in this whole thing, that our lives be and reflect the seven pillars. Not something on a piece of paper, but this is what we become. This is what we are. You wouldn't dare open your mouth. I wouldn't dare open my mouth if I'm a bondservant about anything that I could do for God. Who am I but flesh and blood and deserving of hell? Oh, but I would open my mouth about what Christ has accomplished through me, and so would you. And that's what Paul is talking about. It's a different kind of service. There's no complaint. There's no argument. There, there's no strife because we get to do what we do. Our little grandson, Jonathan, I love to tell that in this audience because we're all the grandparents mostly are in this one. <laughs> the next two services, they haven't even had reflux yet. They don't even know what's going on. But I enjoy being in this one. I feel part of you. <laughs> Little Jonathan's four years old. And, oh, he's, he's a character. I love both our grandchildren. Holland, you've met Holland. But Jonathan is, is such a character. He takes after his granddaddy. He's got those big old lobes on his ears like I do. He even kind of looks like me. Pray for him. <laughs> 
Stephanie, our daughter, went in to tuck him in the other night, a few months ago. I may have shared it with you. And when she went in, she just hugged him, and he's such a lover. And he just hugged his mama and slurps all over, you know. And when she was leaving, he said, Mama? And she said, Yes, John John. He said, Mama, if you need me, you come get me. <laughs> hey, that's the heart. Lord, you know why we sung that chorus a while ago? Well, Brother Wayne, I don't like singing the chorus over and over and over again. Well, you just need to do it. You know why? Because if you'll think about what you're singing, you'll want to sing it the rest of your life. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, yes, Lord. Lord, if you need me, come get me. Because I'm in love with you. And I'm not doing stuff down here because I'm a slave and I have to. Oh, God, thank you for the privilege. I get to. Now, that's what Paul said. That's what he was. Well, the reason Paul's surrender was without any argument, without any complaint, without any gripe. You know why? Well, secondly, because he had, in his surrender, he had no soulish agenda. You see, one feeds the other. A selfish argument comes from someone who has a soulish agenda. When there's arguing and complaining, you can take it to the bank. There's a soulish agenda somewhere. What do I mean, Wayne? A string's attached somewhere. I'm doing what I'm doing, but I've got something I want out of this. Now, what am I talking about? Look at verse 9 of Romans chapter 1. You see, these verses tell us about a heart of a man, about his surrender. We see now what his surrender is like. He says, for God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of his son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Now note that little phrase, God whom I serve in my spirit. The term spirit refers to that part of man that God dwells and where he speaks to us through his word. It's equated from time to time with the heart, but it's, it's a special, it's not a compartment, it's a part of man that God communicates with man. Now, let me explain, two, at the risk of confusing somebody, two theological terms that would be helpful for us to understand. One of the theological views of man is what is called the dichotomous view of man. What does that mean? This is the view that man is basically made up of two components, the physical, the spiritual, the body, the spirit. That's the dichotomy of man. So many, what they do, they take another part that will come out in just a minute, and they, they take the soul and they compress it into one. It's all the spirit, all the spirit. Man is physical, man is spiritual, period. There is no other compartment like the spirit where God dwells within. But then there's the trichotomy, trichotomous view of man. That's the, the term. It's similar, physical and spiritual, but the spiritual is divided into two. There is the spirit where God dwells and speaks to us through his word, and then there is the soul. Now, the soul is the mind, the will, and the emotion. The Greek term for that is psyche. In fact, animals have a soul in that sense. In other words, well, the soul is the immaterial part of us that enables us to relate to the world in which we're in. But since in a Christian life we're not relating here first, we're relating with God, then we have the Spirit. And that's where God speaks to us. And then the will is affected. The mind can understand. And the, and the emotion will take its place. 
So man is different, created higher than the animals. We have a spiritual part of us. Now, both of these two views come out in Scripture, in case you get confused. If you look at death passages, particularly in the Old Testament, it, it puts the soul and the spirit together. They all go at one time. But when you get into the believer's walk, it's always the trichotomous view of man, body, soul, and spirit. God speaks to us through his spirit when we're yielded to him through his word, and then our minds have an understanding the world could not have given to us that we relate to. And then the will can be affected, and then the emotion. We get emotional about it because it's real to us. We see the trichotomous view in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23. He says, Now may the, the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body, there they are right there, be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Romans chapter 1, 9, Paul says, I serve God in my spirit. Now he's telling us something here. He did not soulishly, the way man would serve God, he did not soulishly serve God. You see, a religious person who doesn't have a relationship with God only knows the soulish service to God, which is bondage and slavery. But a believer has been elevated. Christ has come to live in his spirit. Now he can understand. He doesn't live like he used to live. The soul is where the fleshly agenda comes from. Paul said, I don't serve God out of a fleshly agenda with what my mind has understood and what my will has chosen to do. Paul served God in his spirit. Romans 1.9 is very similar to something Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, where he says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience. The word clear is the word katharos, which means unspoiled. In other words, it's been cleansed of something. Of what? Of any soulish agenda. The only way to get rid of soulish agenda is to yield to Christ with a heart that is grateful to serve and he cleanses us of any soulish agenda. And we're purely able to hear from him in our spirit. Our greatest battles with our flesh. All of us know that. I've struggled with mine today. Galatians 5, 16 and 17 tells us it's going to be a war. It's going to be a battle till Jesus comes back. The apostle Paul had to fight that same battle. One of the things he had to fight was his old soulish way of serving God. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7, he makes this, this statement, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And the word fought, there's the word agon. We get the word agony from it. Paul had agonized over this struggle. But if you'll check that word out, every time it's referring to Paul, it's him dealing with his flesh. It's him dealing with something. It's not him defending the faith, etc. That was a given. But it was his fleshly tendency to do things his own way. We saw this in Acts when he just tried his best to get his agenda done over in Bithynia and Asia and Mysia. And God said, I'm no sir, slammed the door in his face and brought him down to where he wanted him to be. He fought that all of his life. We all fight the flesh. We agonize over it. Well, Paul had learned to allow Christ to have his way. That's bottom line. Have you come to that place? so sweet the other night in our seed class we had a young man come to know Christ and he said I'm just at the end of myself I'm sick and tired of doing things my own way I want to do things God's way Paul had learned to allow Christ to overcome him 
Now, what's your fleshly agenda today? If you have one, you may not have one. I'm just asking a question. Do you have a fleshly agenda? Are there strings tied to your serving the Lord? That's why you're always complaining and always arguing, because you can't do that unless you have an agenda somewhere that's hidden. The two walk and fit together. What is it that causes us to argue and complain and what we do in that which we call ministry? When there's no selfish agenda, there is no selfish argument. But the third thing and the final thing is this. Paul had no sinful attitude. This is, this is really the root right here. We're, doing, we're going at it backwards, but this is really where it all starts right here. There was no selfish argument. When there's no selfish agenda, you can bet on it. There's no sinful attitude, but reverse it. When there's a selfish argument, when there's a soulish agenda, there's a sinful attitude somewhere. Now, what is that sinful attitude? This attitude poisons everything. Have you ever <laughs> just had a great day and somebody woke up that morning determined that they were going to cause you not to have a great day? They have the gift of dissension. You ever been around people like that? Kind of like the old boy that went to work and had a terrible day. The boss didn't appreciate anything he did. Got caught in traffic coming home. And his attitude was pitiful. You talking about poison now. Pitifully poison. <laughs> Walked in the house. His precious little wife had cleaned everything up. Spit shined the walls. I mean, just everything. The carpet. But she just didn't have supper ready because she'd been working so hard all day to please her husband that she'd cleaned the house so well. He walks in, he doesn't see the clean house, does he? Because you see, when you have a sinful attitude, you can't see those kind of things. He only sees the fact that supper is not ready. He says, where is my supper? I can't believe it. I go home, I mean, I go to work and I, I work hard and I bring the money home. You can't even have supper ready? Boy, that just a dagger right through her heart. She don't want to say anything to him. He's bigger. So she looks to somebody, her attitude's now poison. And she goes into the little boy's room who's cleaned up his room for the first time in five years. If she would have looked, she could have seen that it really had carpet on the floor. I mean, he had just cleaned it up, put all his toys away, except for three toys that he had saved out because he wanted to play. But in her poisoned attitude, she couldn't see the good things. She saw only the three toys left out, and she said, Son, how many times have I told you to clean up your room and put your toys away? Wow. Boom, a dagger right through his heart. He wasn't going to say anything to her. <laughs> so he looked around the room, and there's the old cat laying over there. I could have said dog, but I hate cats. I'm sorry. And he goes over and grabs a handful of fur, throws the window up. <laughs> if you love cats, I, I pray for you. And he took that cat and threw it as far as he could throw it. And they said that night there was the biggest cat fight in that neighborhood there had been in 20 years. It's incredible. You get somebody doing what they call the Lord's work, and they have a sinful attitude, then that same person is going to have a soulish agenda, and that same person is going to be the most critical, judgmental. They're the people that will make life miserable for everybody. They're poison in the body of Christ. Talk about having an attitude. I had a friend that had a Rottweiler, a Rottweiler, <laughs> dangerous dogs. Everybody says they're sweet, sweet little dogs. Well, he had two beautiful daughters, and his two daughters were dating. And that Rottweiler had grown up with these two girls, and nobody's going to take his girls away from him. And every time the boys would drive up to their house out in the country, that Rottweiler would keep them inside the car. <laughs> in fact, he was told by the boys, five of them, five different ones, that the Rottweiler had bit a hole through their tire. 
And he didn't believe it. He went to the vet. He said, there's no possible way my dog would have that kind of strength. He said, sir, a Rottweiler has a, a bite that's 54 times that of a German shepherd. Yes, he can do that. That's how strong he is. Talk about having an attitude. Paul was not a man who was filled with a sinful attitude. He didn't live life that way. No one owed him anything. You see, a sinful attitude says, I deserve something because I've done something, and I'm a slave and didn't want to do it to start with. I deserve something. People that are on spiritual welfare, you know. God needs to, somebody needs to appreciate me. Paul said, I'm not that way. Verse 4 of Romans 1, he says, I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. I'm under obligation. There's your phrase. Oh, wow. It means I'm a debtor. Nobody owes me anything, but oh, do I have a debt to pay. I'll never be able to pay, but I have a debt. And he wasn't talking about his debt to the Lord. He knows he can't pay that one back, but this is a debt to his fellow men. The word's under obligation. Ophelitis. Oh, a debt. It's in the present tense, which means I live with this every day. I go to bed with it at night. It hovers over me. I wake up in the middle of the night. It hovers over me. I get up in the morning. It hovers over me. There's a debt I owe to my fellow man. I don't live on spiritual welfare. I'm not asking somebody to do something for me because I have obeyed God. No, sir. Paul says that's not who I am. Christ had saved him. And Paul knew that he didn't deserve that. He only deserved hell and he lived with that debt in him. It's kind of like being on a boat that's going to sinking. And you're the only one who knows where the life raft is. Somehow you were privileged to know how to be saved. And you now have an, an obligation to everybody on that boat, whether you know them or not, to tell them how they might get saved. Paul lived with that every day of his life. How can you know when that sinful attitude is there? Well, you serve and you serve and... No one ever thanks you for it. Nobody ever even gave me a little note of appreciation. That's how you know. It's like a lady in the hospital I went to one time when I was in Chattanooga, and I'd already been told to watch out. She's got an attitude. <laughs> I didn't understand how much until I got in the room. She hadn't been in church in five or six years. I didn't even know her. When I walked in, she found out who I was. Her son was sitting there. She said, I want to tell you something. I'm bitter at your church. And I said, well, how come? She said, well, one thing, last week was my birthday, and it was not put in the bulletin. Well, I have a merciful spirit to me somewhere. I'm really more of a peacemaker. I don't like confrontations like that. And I'll get in one if I have to, but that's not what I look for. But the guy with me, totally different, Raymond Gustin. He said, oh, do you go to Woodland Park Baptist Church? She said, I'll have you know I'm a charter member. He said, well, where do you sit? I've been an usher for the last five years. I haven't seen you. She hadn't been there. And her son steps into her. You don't seem to understand. We're charter members of that church. He's, oh, do you go there too? Where do you sit? I ain't never seen you. I'm thinking, this is not good. This is not good. I just jumped right in the middle, had a word of prayer, grabbed Raymond, and took him out of the room. Boy, there's a lot of attitudes out there, aren't there? No way. Not in the body of Christ. Not with people that have been saved by the blood of Jesus and deserve hell. No, they won't have those attitudes. Oh, folks, wake up, smell the roses. Thank God Paul was uniquely different. He didn't have an agenda. He didn't have a sinful attitude. He certainly never had a selfish argument. Bond servants. They're the ones Christ is working through. They're the ones who are not fighting anybody anymore. They've given it up. 
They don't have a selfish argument. They don't have a soulish agenda. They don't have a sinful attitude. When Japan surrendered to America, all the generals were there. The emperor of Japan came up. He didn't walk up and say, okay, guys, boy, you whipped us. That was a close one, but you got us. We surrender. No, sir. He took his sword, which was very strong language, and he handed it to the general of our forces and said, we'll never fight you again. That's what surrender is. God, I'll never fight you again. I'll never fight you again. Andy Frecka and his little wife were over in Siberia playing there, Perm, Russia, Perm, Russia. Get it right in a minute. What if God told you to do that today? You see, when you have an agenda, you can't handle it because it doesn't fit your schedule. And by the way, there's a sinful attitude in me, Wayne, and I want what I want, and I'm going to argue about it because even though I have to do certain things, I've got a complaint. Do you see the difference? Wow. Ministry, ministry is, uh, is a precious thing. It's not about my fleshly commitment to do something for God out of an obligation, out of bondage to the law. But it's just a simple surrender and a yielding. Said, oh, God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I don't deserve to be saved. Thank you for including me. Thank you for letting me join you. That's what it is. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org.